The Dig is a podcast produced in conjunction with Jacobin Magazine, which you probably figured out by now. And yes, Jacobin is a print publication, not just your favorite source of online commentary, but also long-form serious print journalism and socialist analysis. The magazine is released quarterly, and it runs at around 130 pages, filled with award-winning design and the ideas that movements need to thrive. Dig listeners can join more than 50,000 Jacobin subscribers supporting this vital work for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's very extensive archive online. First-time subscribers only, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin, all lowercase. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash digjacobin. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Organizing is hard. If it wasn't, we might live under socialism already. An example from my own work. Right now, I'm helping to organize canvassing for a slate of left-wing Rhode Island state legislative candidates. I wish it was simple. It would be entirely magical if everyone involved in my organization just signed up for shifts after we posted them on the Slack. That is not the case. In fact, I wish that even a fraction of the 10,000-odd people who showed up at Providence's largest Black Lives Matter protest were meaningfully involved in organizing. Yet, that is just not how it works. You have to ask people and remind people. That is the work. And the work is harder than that still. It is the painstaking labor of building human relationships one by one. Relationships that empower people and break down the privatized isolation of life under neoliberalism. Relationships that help develop concrete skills so that people can lead. And all of that is not easy. It's a grind. It's not glamorous. It is what Andre Celine and Raphael Randall, my guests today, call spade work. It's a term popularized by the great organizer Ella Baker. It's the slow, careful work of building capacity and building power. Power that, when exercised, can substantively change the material balance of forces so that you can then build more power and keep winning. Celine and Randall have spent the last few years organizing at Youth United for Change, which organizes working class and poor youth, mostly black and Latino, in the Philadelphia neighborhood of West Kensington. And they recently put out this incredible book about their work, entitled Y'all Trying to Win or Nah? and I'll link to the PDF of that book in the show notes. The book concretely addresses some of the most serious issues that youth organizers in particular and left organizers in general confront. And in doing so, it raises some serious questions about a lot of left pieties. 
So what follows, dear listeners, is an essential and sometimes spicy discussion. In that spirit, today, instead of asking you to support this podcast on Patreon, I'm going to ask you to do something else, and that is to get organized. Many of you, of course, are already organized and are organizing. Many of you listening to me right now are seasoned organizers, but there are probably many of you listening who follow left politics closely by listening to podcasts, reading books, watching Twitter, the news, whatever, but are not really politically active. Or maybe you were politically active, but got burnt by a project or organization that didn't go well. Maybe you're a paper member of a group like DSA, but are not involved in the everyday work of building left power. I want to pitch you on getting involved in organizing, because that's the only way we're going to win. Find a group like DSA, or Reclaim Philly, or in my case, Reclaim Rhode Island, or your union, or whatever group is doing good work that you believe in, commit yourself to putting in some hours every week in a way that makes sense for you and that is helpful for the organization. Open yourself to new leadership opportunities and to learning experiences. Help build place-based power with a popular base and a strategy to win. Organizing is not someone else's paid job. It's a political commitment that we should all make. In short, we desperately need cadre who are part of disciplined organizations with a plan to win. Anyhow, that is my pitch to you for this week. And here we go. Andre Celine is the outgoing lead organizer at Youth United for Change. He has worked as an educator, social worker, and community organizer in North Philadelphia for almost a decade. Raphael Randall is the executive director of Youth United for Change. His experiences as a former industrial designer and urban planner have shaped his understanding of what it takes to build transformative left organizing projects within black and brown working class communities. Andre Celine and Raphael Randall, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having us. Yeah, great to be here. The book that YUC put out that you all helped write is called Y'all Trying to Win or Nah. Why is that the question? For us, you know, when we think about a lot of the things that we've experienced in our work, we feel like that question isn't asked enough based on the types of activity projects we've seen folks in our sector in particular, but more broadly in the U.S. left, have undertaken. And for us, if we're not asking ourselves questions around winning, then too often we can find folks like us kind of drifting into projects that, you know, don't actually, quote unquote, move the ball, but instead are used to help people navigate the powerlessness they feel with this immense task that we have in front of us around transforming society in the interest of those who were deeply marginalized and, pre- and oppressed by it. And we just feel like in order to kind of get out of that that pattern of just doing work for the sake of protecting our egos or 
protecting ourselves from the realities of how difficult it is to engage in systems change work at the scale that we need to, that we have to start really getting back to this question of winning and what is that. That's an immense task indeed. Uh, Andres. Yeah, that's once we realized that what we were trying to put forward was going to be a book, both in length and in terms of sort of the, the quality and feel to it, um, quickly we realized that would have to be the title because it's actually a phrase that one of our like staff comrades, Kat Engelman, coined early on in sort of us being in the same orbit, both in YUC and other organizing spaces doing work uh, as a sort of everyday way to synthesize the sort of primary thing to try to always refocus around, which is like, is whether this is uncomfortable, whether this feels like it's we're diving into unknown territory, whether it's not following the, the plan that we set out in the beginning or uh, it's bringing up people's insecurities, right? All of those things so often take precedence over, are we trying to win or not? Because if we are, then that has to be the primary horizon that we're consistently guided by as we do our work, as we shift our work, and as we sort of assess whether we're being effective or not. Right? And so that it's kind of like an it was kind of like an inside joke for a while. And then it was clear like that's that's what the name has to be. <laughs> it turns out the joke is the world historic task. Exactly. <laughs> Your book makes an argument that the book also seeks to embody that we need to be in a better, really serious habit in left organizations of recording and evaluating our work in real time. And that you argue, is how you do organizing a way that is founded in dialectical materialism rather than in idealism and dogma. Why is assessment so critical? How do you do it well? And why is this the dialectically materialist way to go about organizing? Yeah, well, for us, you know, one of the things that we realized early on is that they're just based on the conditions in which we were facing there wasn't necessarily like a how-to book on ways in which organizations like ours in particular can navigate the constantly shifting terrain that was that we were dealt. So we were going to have to experiment. But the only utility of those experiments would be would be uncovering lessons at the end of those experiments that we could build on to take us to the next stage of whatever point of development we were at as an organization. So for us, assessment and evalu uh, evaluation and reflection became like the cornerstone of our work to push us beyond the kind of typical campaign organizing that many of us have come up in uh, under, you know, under the NGO social justice sector, which is kind of like, you know, identify your targets, um, you know, go after your targets with all means possible until you have enough power to actually get what you want. What we were trying to do was basically really figure out not only like how do we win campaigns, but in that process, how do we develop new people through the organization's work? Similar to what you see a lot of third world Marxists dealing with. And so for us, kind of reflecting on their practice, you know, self-criticism, assessment of all things was a key component of their success. And so we wanted to incorporate that into our own organization's practice. Yeah, you call for an experimental and even scientific approach, advancing and testing hypotheses. How does that work? 
I think part of the context to what Rafael is saying is also is that we started this era of the organization after a significant implosion where what went wrong was incredibly evident, also painful, but just very clear. And so the impetus to really revamp the organization and to try to build out organizational structures and programmatic structures that addressed the sort of uh, deep inefficiencies, let's say, of the previous model uh, that led to a lot of sort of difficult dynamics that ultimately led to the implosion um, was to inherently focus on addressing those deficiencies. And so we had to, from the very beginning, have as clear an assessment as possible of what went wrong and why, even for those of us who didn't go through that implosion to then be able to say, okay, this is how we build something. Like we believe that this organization still needs to be here. Um, there's no other organizing vehicles in this part of the city. Um, and so we, we, we need to figure out how to do it well. But because what was clear based on what hadn't worked before pointed us in a direction that we didn't have experience building. And so we knew also from the beginning that it would have to be experimental because we would have to A, build it as we fly it, right? And also we had to build new muscles that we didn't have. And so it, based on a lot of what Raphael pointed out, based on previous uh, lessons from different leftist, both experiments and also kind of national liberation struggles and a lot of what is actually documented from that area allowed us to draw from that and inform what we were doing, but we knew it had to be experimental, both in terms of what organizing looks like in Kensington, which is the neighborhood we're in, in the city, and then just be thinking about ourselves being part of the US left more broadly. And so that that hypothesis testing format was the clearest way that we could draw from to say, okay, we, we don't know if this is gonna work. We believe our assessment sort of point in this direction that this may be necessary. So let's try it, but then we have to evaluate and see if it worked, do we improve on it? Do we shift it? What needs to happen to continue moving us closer to, to what that vision of what the organization needs to be can become, we, we hoped. We should pause there and not skip over it. Why you see, like you said, all but collapsed, I think around five years ago, staff and members left. Why did that happen? What was that like? What did you learn from it? And how did you end up building something stronger rather than what often happened in such a situation, which is the organization just ceasing ceasing to exist? Yeah. Um, well, in terms of folks who were present during that process, um, it was myself and the, the office manager. And, you know, the thing uh, to build on Andres just shared, uh, the reason why it was so important to do the assessment after that was that if you looked at the organization from the outside looking in, up until September, October of 2015, it appeared as though the organization went through a relatively safe transition. Young people were out in the streets. We were involved in a number of different ac actions with different groupings. This isn't the first Black Lives Matter upsurge moment. Huge die-in at 30th Street Station. Yeah. I mean, there was just a lot of activity. And, you know, and if, you know, in general, like uh, for a lot of our projects like ours, we were actually doing youth organizing, quote unquote, right. Right. Like young people were leading the way. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of quote unquote adultism playing out. I worked really hard to 
really just learn from the members, being that I, I hadn't had the type of formal organizing or managerial experience prior to coming on board. So it was it was both being put in a position to lead and to also learn on the go. Um, so for the most part on the outside, it looked like things were great, right? Like we were getting, we were moving, we had members. It was awesome. But the reality was far different, and you know, and when you look at what was happening, right, you know, as I talk about in the book, nine or eight days approximately after I started, uh, Mike Brown was was uh, murdered in the streets of Ferguson, which at the moment felt like a seismic, seismic impact that, oh, like the, the ground just shifted beneath us. We didn't know exactly what was going to happen, but we knew that the kind of organizing that YUC had taken uh, taken up prior to this would potentially undergo some some changes. And then there was the, the later on, right, as activity in, in, in Missouri picked up, there was the, the quick trip uh, burning that happened, which, you know, from my vantage point, on top of the organizing that was taking place by groups like OBS, uh, organization for Black Struggle and more on the ground there, there was there was also a lot of excitement about what was emerging, right? Which led to a whole lot of questions about uh, the organization's role in broader movement beyond the sector. And so as this was all happening, what we started to realize was that there were deep political political disagreements that existed far beyond my time with any organization, but really caught on fire once new leadership came in and around the, the nature of leadership, around the, the role of young people in movement, around the organization's formal structure as an NGO and its quote-unquote commitment to radical politics. There was just a lot of things that hadn't been resolved that had been bubbling for so, some time. And as things grew increasingly hot with activity on the streets, both in Philadelphia and abroad, and then we we, we were fielding requests to to make you know to support folks around rapper response in different parts of the country, et cetera. It just became abundantly clear that there was also a lack of clarity across the board internally, and in, both in terms of membership and staff, but also high levels of underdevelopment that we wouldn't have been able to see had this not arrived in a way that it did. Meaning that the, the kind of standard practice for youth organizing and the, like I said in an earlier statement, you know, the typical campaigns going after targets with any means that you have available to you wasn't as applicable in this moment. And it forced, it, it kind of fed into a lot of the insecurities uh, that both members and staff had about the organization. And without the appropriate political development to to really wrestle with those insecurities in a grounded way, things that were would have been small and other times in terms of disagreements ended up turning into deep, deep, powerful antagonisms that eventually led to the demise of the organization up until that point. Andres, you, you started as an organizer just after this time, what was it like stepping into an organization that was more or less being rebuilt from scratch? It was, in some ways, definitely scary. I think after, my, my sense is that after what Raphael had gone through at the helm of that uh, implosion, it had clearly cut away all the pleasantries. And so even like the first interview on the phone, it's like, look, this is the job. This is what we're trying to do. 
I'm not in it for the bullshit. And is this something you want to be a part of? And so that was like, whoa, okay. That was not my experience applying for jobs up until that point. But for me, it was also in a way, I think holding for the severity of the situation, I think it was also refreshing. I think I had come from a place of, of really kind of being on the ground, doing social work, case management work, working with families in Kensington. So that, I think that was part of why there was a sort of natural connection in a way to do organizing that was based in the neighborhood. But I worked in high schools, I had worked with young people, I'd worked with adults. Um, and I think I had really gotten to see in, in a lot of ways the underbelly of the social services system and the child welfare system from within the nonprofit sector and became increasingly frustrated with all the, in what a lot of ways are systematic, like perverse incentives, but I think also in the particular places I was working in, I think were, were exacerbated as well, which is, you know, folks get rewarded for having more people than coming through the doors with need. And that doesn't really account for actually trying to help folks change their own circumstances. So I was looking for a place that was just real about that. And I think given the rawness of where YUC was at, as I started, I was like, okay, this, this is a clearly a daunting task. I don't know if we're going to make it, but I, I felt some alignment with the need to try to figure something out that was high stakes in that way. Now, in the beginning, you know, as we started onboarding and reading these theorists from many decades ago, I was like, I don't know, is, <laughs> is this going to be applicable really? And I think later I understood the, the different ways in which I think Raphael in the beginning, and then as we started helping sort of co-build the projects became more evident that that way of doing things, right, sort of trying to be as rigorous as possible and having a, a theoretical grounding and some political vision for what we want in the neighborhood, and then beginning to build in that way felt good. Raphael, you said that a few minutes ago that this chaotic moment of the first Black Lives Matter protest wave really brought all these deeply rooted problems in the organization to the surface. And in an earlier conversation that the three of us had, we were talking about people having trouble understanding the role that organizations play before, during, and after moments of mass street politics, like what we've experienced in recent months after the murder of George Floyd. It seems like for now, this discrete moment of mass street action has mostly subsided, and I want to underline for now. But what's your take on how organizations in general— and train cadre in particular, ideally function before, during, and after these acute moments of mass politics? Because organizers can't really create these moments, unfortunately. So how should we relate to them? And how do you remain agile enough to respond to acute conditions without losing focus on long-term power building? That's a, that's a hell of a question. <laughs> um, I, I think it's a question that folks have been wrestling with for hundreds of years in a lot of ways. Um, but, you know, for me, one of the things I keep coming back to in moments like this is like what Miles Horton roughly describes as like organization time and movement building time, right? Like, so there are going to be lows when there's just not a, lot of, not a lot of activity. Our job, right, as cadre is to build organizations that are deeply rooted in working class folks' lives and experiences that infuse left politics and thinking into the most mundane of things in the everyday lives of these folks and build up organizations that can begin winning the type of material 
things and, and, and shifts in terms of power that we need in order to create more space for more people to be involved in work like that, right? But when these moments arrive, right, your hope is that you're positioned in a way that is central to those movements so that you can you can help guide what's happening, right? No one can, uh, no one organization can say that they run the whole thing, right? That's That's just historically just not true. But organizations can play a key role in helping shape and guide the strategy that develops after these immediate upsurges happen. And the only way you can know if your organization is there is by how folks respond to you when these moments arise, right? Are they reaching out to you? Are they looking for your advice? Are they plugging into your work? Are they committing to organization after by seeing how you showed up in those moments? So you really, you know, it's a dialogical thing where you're constantly in dialogue with these these spontaneous uprisings as they're happening. And you're just hoping that your organization is positioned well. And if it's done its work and it's assessed the time, place and conditions and, and has identified the right forces to to rock with prior to these moments, you'll be good. If you haven't done your homework, if you haven't actually done the spade work, then you'll probably be on the outskirts or outside looking in. But the reality is we want to, any, when, when we have those moments that we want to be central at some point within them. And through that process, as we anticipate an inevitable lull in activity, folks who've seen how you practice, who've seen your level of rigor, who've seen your strategic approaches to the work will hopefully want to work with you to prepare for the next big wave, right? Which, which will inevitably happen. We, you know, I think sometimes though, like what happens is when these moments ha- like occur, folks are like super excited and we we understand that, you know, there was a point in, even in, when I came on the YUC back in 2014, where like I said, you know, there was a lot of excitement. We did the die in at 30th Street, but then the next day, Members who had saw who weren't able to participate in that activity decided to launch like walkouts from all the Kensingtons and like did an impromptu march down Front Street. And we saw, you know, we saw like bodegas and barbershops emptying with like older folks coming out and waving and clapping. And then they were super excited. Right. And these were our young folks, along with other folks who just spontaneously were like, yo, let's do this. And it was like, this is beautiful. We like this. This is why we do what we do. And then, you know, you know, so there's there's always going to be excitement. But as you as I said before, like organization is necessary to be able to build on those things. Right. And unfortunately for us, we didn't necessarily have the infrastructure, the political development, the clarity of practice, both amongst myself, staff and members to be able to capitalize on what was happening. You know, again, just to kind of close this out, you know, these moments, some spontaneous activity are just part of the the way in which things happen over time under racial capitalism. There are going to be these uprisings. Our goal is to develop organizations that can help shape them and build power based on these 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 spontaneous uprisings and eventually bring more and more people into relationship with our politics so that. Once we get to the point where we have critical mass, we'll, you know, as Willie Baptist said recently on a a panel I listened to a month ago, we'll be able to get off this carousel of uprisings. And that's that's the hope. Because the system is going to at least 
to some extent cyclically produce these moments, right? As a reaction to things that are that are happening. It's it's helpful for me to think of it as just sort of like a storm, right? Right? Like rain happens in its path, right? The water feeds the different forms of life that receive it. But people make a choice whether to have rain barrels or not. And when you have them, then you get to collect some of that water and then choicefully move in terms of how you, what you do with it. Um, otherwise, it was what fell with the rain and that was it. And I think similarly to what Rafael was saying, I think it's also important for organizations that are base building, that are underground, that are hopefully in deep relationship with working class, especially black and brown communities, to understand that people also have an emotional experience when they're going through a moment like this. Either they've participated in it, and so I think we all have some sense of like the heightened level of emotional response, you know, positive, and some folks it could, could be different as well, of like actually being mobilized around an ideal with hundreds or thousands of people, right? that we don't know, but that we're all in it together with. And there's also an emotional experience of what happens to folks that are seeing it on TV, who are seeing it from a different part of the city, who may not understand every single component of, of the social forces acting on the moment, right? And when you have an organization that's deeply embedded in the communities that are most impacted by the stuff that we're talking about, then we're able to, through that relationship, help folks make sense, right? And through their experiences, also help us make sense collectively around what this moment means. And then how do we use the, the water from the rain buckets to actually build something that moves beyond what Rafael said was the car carousel of, of mobilizations. But if, if that work hasn't been going on for at least years, then there's a lot of potential that, that just isn't utilized to, to build something that outlasts the moment. I love that rain barrel me metaphor. Uh, Andres, let me ask you a, a follow-up to that. To what extent do you think what's happening now is being shaped by seasoned organizers, including a generation trained during and in the wake of the last cycle of Black Lives Matter protests? And to what degree do you think that this movement finds itself trying to reinvent the wheel? Are these cycles of struggle, I guess, around Black Lives Matter in particular, but also the broader cycle of left struggles we've seen over the last couple decades, are they cumulatively building power and so the the first thing i'll say is that i um around this recent set of uprisings and in terms of organizing work directly aimed at addressing police brutality or the the criminal justice system more broadly that's not my area of work um and so i'm not speaking as someone who's been at the forefront directly involved however there's a there's a lot of external conditions that make the moment qualitatively different the pandemic being a key one of them, right? Um, I think also being under a Trump presidency where a lot of folks that are fall more broadly in the spectrum in terms of progressives and liberals and folks in the center, I think there, there's a more knee-jerk reaction to, you know, there being a, a very clear identification of things that are wrong in the system for people on that political side of the political spectrum. He's a little um, so bit polarizing. He's a bit polarizing. And, <laughs> you know, a lot more folks disagree with him that would be involved in these kinds of things than they were under Obama. I think those things have also helped shape the degree to which the at least, you know, to put it in liberal terms, the conversation about race uh, has sort of very quickly permeated boardrooms, organizational settings, you know, the Amazon's website, you name it. And so I think those they're important to keep in mind. I think in terms of what's been happening on the ground, 
it feels similar to me than a lot of what we were seeing in, in 2015. I think the building of narratives, I think, has has actually put a significant dent in the national conversation in a way that in 2015 that hadn't happened. Right. I think a lot of politicians, especially Democrats, were making political calculations as to whether they wanted to come out formally behind Black Lives Matter as a slogan, as a movement. I think that really wasn't the case this time around. So I think there's there's definitely been significant shifts that have happened over the last period because of the work that folks in you know the movement for Black Lives and Black Lives Matter chapters and more broadly organizing around these issues have done for sure. And at the same time, in terms of what we've seen folks trying to wrestle around in terms of what are the material things that happen when we say defund the police, you know, both in terms of budgets, as well as reinvesting resources in a moment of austerity, right? But in terms of codifying shifts that are significant, even though they may be seen as small, but I think are also systemic, like the, you know, people say non-reformist reforms to the extent that it's small shifts, but make space to challenge the hegemony of how governments and budgets work, right? I think that there was a lot of wrestling with that. And um, I, I, I think we've seen that because there haven't been enough organizations that are working and have been working for years, doing the really difficult, grueling, you know, sometimes one step forward, two steps back work of organizing in the most impacted neighborhoods. I think in a lot of cases, not everywhere, and obviously every locale is different. Minneapolis is going to be different than Philadelphia and New York uh, in terms of closeness of what's happening um, and the, the murder, murder of George Floyd specifically. By and large, I think we've seen this moment pass without being able to fully make use of the potential that it presented. I think partly is also, you know, mobilizing under COVID is an entirely different conversation onto itself. It's harder. And yet, I think in a lot of ways, it still does feel like there's lessons from the 2014-15 era that haven't fully materialized at the broader national level into concrete shifts in organizing practice to take advantage of the moment. Yeah, I, I like to add to that, actually. I, I agree with a lot of what, what I just put forward. And, you know, as someone who saw how things unfolded here in Philadelphia back in 2014, 2015, and kind of how things have unfolded within the last couple months in 2020, there are definitely a lot of similarities in terms of, you know, the different tactics, activities, things like that. But the question I keep coming back to around this thing around power is like, are, are, do we all hold the same understanding of what we mean by power? Because when I think about power in, in particular, what's going to be necessary to transform society in the interests of, of working and poor uh, folks, there are things that I think have to be brought into this conversation about effectiveness that I don't think uh, are currently at the top of the list. Um, you know, when you think about how, how things have been playing out. And, you know, the reality is, you know, for us, you know, we're, we're in a part of the city that is one of the hardest hit is home to not only just the resilient and, and thoughtful uh, set of folks, right? Like people that have been through a lot, but um, it's home to one of the most notorious drug corridors on the Eastern seaboard. The famed open air heroin market. 
Yeah, which means that there, you know, there are constant questions around the role of police, right? Uh, when it, when it comes to this part of the city, right? We're in relationship with hardworking folks, folks who are dealing with a lot, and we didn't necessarily see the type of calls for not only defunding, but like abolition of the police, because these folks are dealing with a set of circumstances that I think if these circumstances aren't resolved with an infusion of material supports, not only from the city, but the state and just like immense, immense amounts of like investment, us getting rid of the special groups of people with arms, right, isn't necessarily going to resolve their issues. And we just haven't seen enough conversation about that as a contradiction because it cuts against kind of like the the bourgeois politic and like almost a simplistic kind of dichotomy between being for or against police. And, you know, we were dealing with very simple dichotomies back in 2014, 2015 um, in a similar way. And a lot of that I tie specifically to folks who are involved in these types of activities, not only not having enough of a political grounding in the, in the in, in, you know, both in terms of like theory and stuff like that, you know, uh, but also just like aren't deeply engaged in the, the goings and comings of like poor working class folks of color and, and aren't actually being transformed through that process to hold a more nuanced and uh, strategic orientation, right? Because, you know, when- you said that this, that amid this groundswell of activity, there were simply not enough trained black leftists to do what needed to be done. And also that there was a lack of people with organic connections to neighborhoods like Kensington. Yeah. I mean, you know, and that's not to say that there weren't people from those neighborhoods that are participating in these activities. We're not saying that. But I think in terms of folks that are thinking about this in a broader historical way, right, who are thinking about, you know, how systems function and develop over time, who are well-trained um, in terms of building organization, who are, like I said, like not looking for an adventure and not looking for something that's exciting, but are really committed to the spade work. I, for me, you know, I feel like that is a deficiency that we just haven't been able to overcome. And I think a lot of that is out of fear of like providing criticism specifically to young people who, you know, are on the front lines, you know, like who are resisting and are engaging in a beautiful struggle in their own way, but may not be developed enough to really understand, aren't experienced enough to really understand what's really happening, right? And, you know, our job as Marxists is to be about the business of unmasking what the ruling class is constantly trying to hide, to constantly try to de-fetishize the world around our folks so that we're not running to these problems where we're we're being demobilized because we're resisting in in an obvious manner, but the system itself is just adapting, right? It's it's an organic system. It it, it is a knock it inoculates itself every time we wage resistance on it. And then it, you know, instead of folks getting what they were calling for, we got street paintings and we got streets that were named after BLM, right? And now folks are being kind of demobilized and being disappointed, right? So our job is like trained left black leftists is to provide 
you know, provide that demystification through organizations so that folks don't feel like there's no hope, right? That folks still feel like there's hope, even when things like this inevitably occur, because we frankly just don't have the power or the scale to prevent that type of superficial offering um, from folks in the ruling class at this moment. That sets me up nicely for a spicy follow-up question to either of you. When we talked before, you said that neighborhood-level property destruction in Kensington provoked a really negative reaction from people who live in Kensington, and that that whole dynamic really was a symptom of, of a lack of organization and of organizers not having organic connection to the neighborhood. And people in Kensington in particular, you told me, were pissed off that their local pharmacy was torched, if I remember correctly. I think the discussion over property destruction has been a bit murky and confused on the left because I think most of us want to defend protesters against establishment and right-wing critics. How do you see the question in general and in Kensington in particular, and, and how does it relate to this argument that you both are making about the the lack of organization and lack of organic connections between organizers and the people they purport to represent? This is probably the most complicated conversation to have about, around uh, the uprising, especially here in Philadelphia, because it requires a lot of nuance and also the pitfalls are so great, right? Like the, the narratives on the right and even some liberal circles around like the right protesters and the wrong protesters and is used to uh, attack and undermine movements and organized political activity and working class black and brown people in general so much that there, there's understandable and much needed pause before just jumping to conclusions around that. So that's that's the first thing. Uh, and so it's, it's complicated, it's tricky, it's dicey. And I think to Raphael's point, that's also aided by the fact that to engage in that can undercut a lot of the narrative or even ideological positions that folks are using to hold up the political activity around the current moment. I think also not every protester did everything, right? And so it, it's also complicated because the day before here in Philadelphia, you had folks who were downtown breaking glass and doors to like chain stores downtown, right? Um, and while I think everyone would be concerned as to whether folks who are working uh, minimum wage jobs in those places are gonna be able to go to work or not. I think no one's sharing tears on the left, let's say for shareholders of Target and stuff like that. Or the Apple store. The Apple store, right. But in other parts of the city where you actually hadn't seen the level of mobilization that you saw downtown, at least not up until that moment. And where you have a lot of folks, you know, some, someone that we know who has been doing like community level grassroots work, working with young people in the community, you know, he's, he called it a, a collective panic attack, right? Particularly the looting that happened the day after, the, you know, the uprising starting in Philadelphia. And so, so it's also complicated because some folks will say, well, oh, those looters, those, those thieves or whatever. And that again, easily takes up the like criminalizing of working class black and brown people that is so prevalent in society. And so it, you know, it, it's, it's complex to hold. And so holding all of that, it's still, as you were saying, is important to, if, if we're not connected to folks on the ground, then it's easy to just take a more general, I would say, you know, progressive stance of, well, you know, it's, it's th these things just happen. 
right? And so like, what, why are we caring more about property than people? And we, we all believe that in principle, but when you know folks who depend on the economic activity on commercial corridors in really, really hard hit neighborhoods in a way that no one else depends on that kind of activity, when you know that you're not going to be able to see only your... people who live near Front Street or Kensington Avenue are shopping on it. Right. They're shopping on it. They're employed by stores there. You have a lot of mom and pops where folks have really worked hard to be able to have some kind of economic base that, you know, both supports their family, but also supports economic activity in the neighborhood. I used to work at a high school and we would try to get donations for events. And it's always the mom and pop folks that donate a lot of food. The chain stores don't donate food. You know what I mean? And so... All, all of that people know inherently because when you you have to be so attuned to what are the spaces that are going to provide some kind of relief and opportunity stuff, then you know who's who, right? In the communities that really depend on each other because the state isn't investing and is actually intentionally disinvesting in those communities. And so when that happens, right, when you don't have access to, you can't just change your primary care physician because you have to go through the state to change insurance information when you're getting it from the state and you know that because of the pandemic it's hard and then you can't change your prescription and walgreens is it wasn't it wasn't burned up it wasn't torched but it was you know it was looted and a lot of personal information was stolen then you can't get your medication that you need right and so if folks aren't or already organically involved in political activity and those kinds of mobilizations and then they're seeing a lot of the after effects that's such a, a moment of as as this person said collective panic then ensues and you can you can go down all the different sociological and psychological reasons why it makes a lot of sense for folks to take advantage of the moment and just like steal some shit right so it's not to criminalize or call it an individual deficiency right systemically we understand why that happens but when we're trying to frame the narrative of what happened in those days for the city around a political agenda and we're not in dialogue with folks who really lost out right who are worse off because of what happened and we're not able to have enough trust with them to be able to both frame, but also change our practice to address those needs, then what happens is that, and what we've seen even with young people that have been part of our organization that said, hey, I support the movement, but I don't have a job anymore. And so I don't know how to feel right now. And we're texting us to like, help, help me know how to feel in this moment because I'm really pissed off, right? If we're not holding that level of nuance, if not in the national conversation, that at least with folks in those neighborhoods, then we actually do ourselves a disservice because it actually makes it harder to then organize in those neighborhoods around all the stuff that we know needs to happen. Yeah. I mean, organizers don't have the luxury of not having that conversation. Exactly. It, exactly. It, it's interesting. I'm rereading Up South by Matthew Countryman. And in the 1964 North Philly riot, the looting was extremely targeted. It was almost exclusively white-owned businesses that were hit. Even a Chinese restaurant that put up a sign that said, we're colored too, was spared. Yeah. I mean, kind of building off of what Andres put forward, a dear comrade of ours recently asked the question, you know, what are we supposed to do? People are resisting, they're fighting, and then we're told that that's not the right thing to do and that the only thing we can do is, like, pursue electoral stuff, but then we don't actually believe that that's going to work, so what are we supposed to do? And I think that's been indicative, you know, I can't speak for everywhere else, but I think in Philadelphia, a lot of this kind of conversation happens along those lines, where it's like, you have to do it the right way, and the right way includes X, Y, and Z. And then folks are like, no, that's nonsense, you know, that's liberal thinking, we shouldn't be protecting property, et cetera. 
And I think for us, what we're trying to say is we don't think it's a, it's a either that or, you know, it's either resisting or just doing electoral stuff. We feel like at the end of the day, we're not even doing the basics, which is actually organizing with people on the ground in communities that we think hold folks that are key to the radical transformation of the city. There's just not a lot of folks that are committed to a place-based power, you know, power building strategy. And that shows up in how we think about strategy, how we carry out tactics. Everything is happening like, you know, at this like grass, grass tops level where we're like, yo, our folks are not connected to this stuff, right? They're not, they're not connected to it. And so if we're, if, you know, so these arguments feel a lot of times they feel one-sided or particularly uh, mechanical, like being in this neighborhood, living in this, you know, living in West Kensington, you just see things, you see how things develop over time. And just like, a, like earlier in the year, like Ellen and I did a raid along front street, right? They're like targeting, like you have, you have real estate interest and people in the city targeting this, this particular set of corridors along front in Kensington to redevelop. And now we're in a situation where that is even more viable for these folks, which means inevitably that the people that we're working with can be potentially pushed out of the neighborhood in a matter of decades, right? Which, you know, in the short term, these things, like I said, they feel awe-inspiring. We're seeing real resistance. But if we're not understanding this stuff in a historical sense, then we're not really thinking through all the different facets of how these different tactics can impact our ability to actually build power. And I just, I just think that sometimes we get so fixated on the performance of a politic of looking like we're resisting rather than actually doing the work of figuring out how do we engage folks on the ground? How is our work actively embedded in the daily lives of folks? How are we actively creating spaces where people can undergo the type of transformation that will be necessary for them to develop new social relations, new ways of understanding their own agency? And then from that place, how are we expanding that and making it the current kind of like mainstream way of practicing life in a city like Philadelphia and beyond. We're just like not wrestling with those questions and it shows up and we just keep, you know, history, you know, someone said history doesn't repeat itself, but it, it rhymes. And, you know, as someone who was there in 2015, who was, who was still in place in 2020, I'm seeing a, a rhyme rhyme scheme and we're still avoiding the key questions because the folks who are having these debates aren't necessarily embedded in these communities doing the work. It's just, this is not what's happening. You all go after a lot of left pieties in the book. And one is that you that you were just touching on, I think, is that while, while it's obvious that oppressed people must lead struggles for their liberation, you, you also say that there's a certain left politics that fetishizes and romanticizes a certain type of authentic leadership, often black and brown leadership in the case of your work in particular, Black and brown youth leadership follow the lead of black and brown youth as though that is a self-explanatory statement. But you, you say that this obscures how working class black and brown people have been underdeveloped in certain skills that are necessary for successful organizing. You write, quote, we on the left struggle with the harsh reality that those who suffer the most under racial capitalism are also historically underdeveloped, meaning the people most primed to fight for a new world have the fewest tools in place to build it. This is another complicated discussion if you thought the property dis- <laughs> destruction discussion was complicated <laughs> um 
But I think what you're saying here applies to a, a kind of like a broader principle. This is maybe the most powerful case of a broader principle that informs left yes. politics these days. I, I, explain what you see happening and a better, more clear way to approach things if people want to actually build bases and power rather than just sort of the simulacra of that. I think it's pretty simple. You just have to start small. Right? We all we all know the the example of, you know, the young lords and and other liberation movements at the time who started working with a particular impetus, um, militancy and ideological framing and then counter folks were like we need to like make sure that the trash gets taken away or you know the the like the lights come on the streets and like until you can show me that we can do that i'm not going to pay attention to anything else that you say and i think to to rafael's point earlier like that takes a really long time changing the kinds of relationships that organizations have with folks on the ground especially knowing that in the u.s in the hardest hit neighborhoods people actually have a lot of different relationships with nonprofits and government agencies everyone in the hardest hit neighborhoods, everyone has a very clear sense of what the role that the Department of Human Services or Child Welfare plays in their lives. People know what nonprofits provide certain services or provide some kind of relief. Like folks know how to navigate the system to be able to obtain what they need, especially when they're boxed outside of the labor market. Right? But those relationships are also codified in a very particular way, right? Like what I was mentioning before, you know, it's like the, the more need, the better these nonprofits do. And that doesn't I don't mean to obscure the really, really vital work that social workers and folks that do on the ground work within organizations or even just out of their own volunteering, like it's essential life-sustaining work, uh, right? And I know folks personally who I'm still in relationship with who I deeply, deeply respect and admire their practice, right? So, but we're talking about it at the systemic sort of socially reproduction, so socially reproducing level. And in order to change the way that folks see themselves in relationship to different organizations, it takes time to make the case to someone that instead of dedicating, you know, their, their time and energy to X activity that we're inviting them to, as opposed to what little leisure time they have or other life-sustaining things that they have to do for themselves, families and neighborhoods and communities, it's, it's a high threshold of trust. It's a, it's a high threshold of being able to help folks or provide space for folks to move past a very, very logical apathy to this kind of stuff. Right? I've seen it go around. I've seen, I've seen it come. I've seen it go. Nothing changes. And so why am I going to do X? Right? And I think to, to be able to, to do that takes time. And to invest in the kinds of sometimes grueling minutia that's required to do that means that we don't get to spend the time doing the things that we feel more powerful doing or that seem more radical or that signal that we are fighting the, the, the most important political fight in that moment, right? And not doing the spade work that we know is going to take years, which which means that we can't we can't say that we're doing the the exciting or the most pressing stuff. Uh, we can't put it in our grant reports. We may not be able to secure the kind of funding we've been able to secure to actually prioritize doing that stuff. And so there's so many incentives at the, the sort of social movement organization level to not do that. I think that's one thing. And the other thing is that it's, you know, I think we, we all agree that the most oppressed people in societies 
um, in you know, oppressed communities and society should be both leading and their interests should be the guiding line for the political changes that we're all seeking. And when folks who are spearheading that work aren't acquainted with the everyday reality and the social forces acting in the communities where those folks are living, then it's, and I, I may feel like because I'm not doing that, I don't have the right to comment or I don't have the right to hold people accountable in a certain way that's uncomfortable. And so the easier thing to do that feels right, that feels righteous and ethical is to say, well, let's just put resources in a particular neighborhood and let folks just do, do their thing, right? I've heard that so many times with, with youth. I've been in interviews with funders where they're asking me, how do we organize, you know, what's our organizing model? And once I start talking about it, feel super grabbed, right? These are white liberals that have never set foot in a working class neighborhood <laughs> that like own these funds. I'm like, but doesn't it feel exclusive to have people have to sign a contract to be part of your own? Oh, or, or so hard on those to... poor kids. Right. Like, why are you being so hard on those poor kids? That's clearly a very liberal standpoint, but uh, maybe less caricaturesque manifestation of that, I think is still present in a lot of different social movement organizations and nonprofits in particular. That means you just have to like put, you know, just trust the vision of whoever the folks that other we're working with and it's magically going to happen. And as you mentioned, that just doesn't account for the intentional, structural, intense underdevelopment that has been hoisted upon the folks that we're trying to organize with. And that, that also doesn't mean that then that, that small cadre of people that went to small liberal arts schools should then run the show. Of course not. But then, but it does mean that we have to do the spade work and we have to build our organizations in a way that our campaign wins are as important as both the skills and the ideological and emotional development that's happening with the folks that are going through and transforming through that work. Raphael, what, what does it mean to, to actually build powerful bases in oppressed communities rather than just pretending that that's what you're doing so it looks good in the newspaper or to a foundation or to a guilty liberal conscience? Yeah. I, I mean, first, I'll, just to build off of what Andres said, I mean, the reality is that that's, that viewpoint that we put forward is not new. It's not original. I mean, you can see, you can go back and see Lenin writing about this and what is to be done uh, specifically in the chapter, we talk about spontaneity and he's saying directly that like working people, not because of their own flaws, but they won't be able to develop the type of theory that say someone who was specifically trained to do so will. right? People may have a problem with that, but then you go on and you look at, uh, you look at other third world Marxists like Cabral and folks like that, who actively went out of their, of their way to address underdevelopment and how they structured their programs, right? Like there was, they were teaching people, right? They weren't uh, using written words for a lot of folks who were using pictograms to like, you know, outline particular tactics they were going to use in strategy. You have, you know, Che in the mountains, like training people, you know, on, on communist theory and all that stuff. And then, you know, in the U.S. context, you have someone like Robert Moses, who was in Mississippi, specifically talking about the underdevelopment of young people, but but them being the best suited to help lead movement because they 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 want it. Right. But he wasn't he wasn't actively saying that, like, they're, you know, be, they're magical and that they just know how to do this. He was saying that there are limitations placed upon them by poor schooling and all that and a lack of direct uh, support. Um, but if we 
you know, we address those issues, they can be developed into powerful leaders. And that's really the point we're trying to make is that these people aren't going to have, they're not going to pop up overnight. Like we're going to have to actively develop organizations that are developing people to lead. And, you know, again, this is not new. This is not something that we came up with. It's a historical truth. Um, In terms of like why we need people to, why we need to build powerful bases, in my experience, too much of what I've seen practiced on the left is like horse trading, right? With spectacle, meaning like we do actions, right? And people get to offer testimony and things like that and get in the media, right? And there's this adage that if it's not captured by the press, it didn't happen. So people are like consumed with the press. But, you know, we do that. But then, you know, there's a select group of folks who are mostly like petty bourgeois folks who go and meet with the decision maker behind behind the closed doors and they do horse trading. Well, having the whole kind of United Colors of Benetton, most oppressed people at the front show. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then what happens, right? You have an entire you have entire swaths of the city that have literally not had any recent experience with left organizing, don't know what it is and and don't and, and really don't even care because it's not actually impacting their daily lives. And in a city like Philadelphia, uh, where you have 44 percent of the population uh, that are black, I think roughly between 13 and 16 percent Latino folks and, and other folks of color, like it's a it's a you know, it's a people of color city for the most part. It's sad that there's only a handful of a handful of groups that are actively doing or attempting to do work that is rooted in the particular neighborhoods in which these folks find themselves. Right. A lot of the activity that you see is just air wars. It's just calm wars. It's just people, you know, putting out Twitter tweets and putting out Facebook posts talking about their strategic orientation, but they're not actively engaging folks. Right. And one of the reasons for that is because in order for you to engage folks on the ground, you yourself have to undergo a a form of personal transformation. That it is impossible for you to hold on to a purist politic and then engage with working and poor people and see the the ways in which they're wrestling with life, see the kinds of contradictions they're dealing with and remain the same. You just can't do it. And there is a kind of a resistance to seeding the type of lifestyle that I think comes with being a prominent leftist voice in this that folks just don't want to give up. And so you just see a lot of air wars, but none of that power, none of that agency that that we're experiencing as individuals is being bestowed or being developed within these communities. And therefore, things fundamentally don't change. Right. If the Cuban Revolution happened today, too many people would be like, tweet, wow, it's problematic that an Argentine doctor is trying to lead Cuban campesinos. Absolutely. <laughs> and then do nothing to organize with the Cuban campesinos. I mean, we we get we get dinged for being uh, a little too, um, <laughs> I don't want to say restrictive, right? The level of rigor, you know, people assume that we work all the time and that the young folks aren't having fun. They're like, no, like young people actually want this structure. Our folks want structure. They want to know how to do this stuff. But we're not actively putting in the time because for us to put in the time means that we will have to change as people. And we'd rather not do that because there's no incentive to do that. Right. It means that we're going to be further away from the gatekeepers, further away from the decision makers. And it's like, you know, Andre said, it it takes a a hell of a long time to actually build power the way we're describing that it has to be done. It can also be really uncomfortable because our folks 
can hold a lot of really problematic views about the world, about different social roles, right? And I think we often see as either spaces that just push those views out, right? Like if you don't know how to use all the key terms, then you're out or they let them, they let folks just kind of show up, but don't actually build uh, structures that are loving and also rigorous around accountability, right? And I'm not going to call you out, but I may call you in and then explain to you why, what are the impacts of that language, why we don't use that here, but in a way that recognizes that it's not folks' fault that they haven't had access to those words or those spaces, right? But to do that and to do the, the immense level of emotional labor that sometimes it takes to do that is, is really hard. And again, is really grueling. And it also makes us really uncomfortable. Like we, we, you have to question like, damn, am I, am, am I living true to my political ideals? Am I doing the most I can to, uh, to reduce certain kinds of harm when working with folks that aren't going to come into the space ready-made with the, with all the different practices and all the different beliefs and all the different use of language that are required to sort of live up to the, the ideals that we structure our spaces with. One of the things that people just don't understand is that people don't hold on to, to oppressive behavior because they're inherently bad people. They've observed, they've, they've seen how things play out in their, in, in their society and in their environment. And what they realize is that these particular forms of, 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 of systems of oppression actually give them meaning, right? They provide meaning for them, how to move through the world, how to be a human being, regardless of how bad they are, right? And as a left, what we've not done is develop new meaning that is actually uh, grounded in the experiences of these folks. And what I mean by that is like, you know, why you see, we're not just telling people don't don't do X, Y, and Z because it's bad. We're like, this actually erodes our ability to actually function as an organization when people aren't allowing other folks to show up authentic in their as their authentic selves in ways where they don't have to suffer oppression, et cetera. So, like for us to actually win, you're going to have to undergo a process of transformation. That means letting go of the 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 things that gave you meaning prior, whether it's patriarchy, whether it's, you know, um, classism, whatever it is. And through this process and what we're trying to model for you, adapt these new ways of uh, identifying yourself, of being in the world so that we can win, right? And, and we don't do enough of that, right? And so what happens, as Andre said, it's like someone comes in as wrong uh, or that, that does things that uh, appear to be backwards. We just get rid of them because it's uncomfortable because we don't, we don't, we actually like a world where things are black and white and where there's good and there's evil. Um, but I always go back to this idea of like how the contradictions amongst your people aren't the same as those with the opposition, right? So that like, how do we actually persuade people? What is the process of persuasion that we're using in our organizations to help bring about uh, new ways of practice that are rooted in a new type of meaning derived from the work that our organizations are doing? I think that's a really important point. My guiding philosophy has always been that most people have problematic views, sometimes really problematic views. It's not, you. It, there's this idea in certain liberal left circles that it's almost like unique to white working class people, but we have this sort of deification demonization dynamic that does nothing to help us develop a clear analysis, deal with those oppressive ideologies, and then build real power. And also, of course, that puts, it's an idealist assessment of people that uh, puts the bad ideas in people's head as a real causal agent for bad things in the world. 
Yep. And folks know when they're entering a space that's structured like that. Like it's 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 immediate. Um, and on on the flip side, I think this is especially true with young people because in some ways they're they they have less you know that that may ha cert hold certain views right that they have sort of less to unlearn just in terms of how long they've been on the earth. But I think across the board, if we are able and we've seen this when we're able to structure a space that is primarily premised on honoring folks dignity and just being real um, and transparent and honest and also about what we believe in why it structures what we do right we sort of build build that in as, as organically as we can then we get to a point where we build enough trust um, and and you know that I'm gonna do what I do because I care about you because I've proven to you that I care about you through my actions and through the ways we've structured this process then if I say hey we need to have a conversation about this. I understand where it comes from and this is the impact that it has. What we more often see is people be like, damn, I didn't know that. Cool, thanks. Right? It takes time, right? We have to practice the muscles, especially around language. But again, like Rafael said, like I think especially like folks who are experiencing a lot of the oppression that we're talking about don't want it to be there. Like we want to find a place that actually gives us structure and and make us feel like we're able to, in, at whatever pace it takes, build the skills necessary to do this work. And I think a lot of the hangups we often see expressed more strongly with folks that don't have that background. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s by Mike Davis and John Wiener. Los Angeles in the 60s was a hotbed of political and social upheaval. The city was a launch pad for black power, where Malcolm X and Angela Davis first came to prominence, and the Watts uprising shook the nation. The city was home to the Chicano blowouts and Chicano moratorium, as well as being the birthplace of Asian American as a political identity. It was a locus of the anti-war movement, gay liberation movement, women's movement, and, of course, the California counterculture. Mike Davis and John Wiener provide the first comprehensive movement history of L.A. in the 60s, drawing on extensive archival research and dozens of interviews with principal figures as well as the author's storied personal histories as activists. Following on from Davis's award-winning L.A. history, City of Courts, Set the Night on Fire is a historical tour de force delivered in scintillating and fiercely beautiful prose. Set the Night on Fire L.A. in the 60s by Mike Davis and John Wiener. Out now from Verso Books. You write about how people often think they're doing organizing work when they're in reality operating social clubs or a social service operation for particular population subsets, an orientation more to like social service than building power. And Raphael, you, you confronted this when you took over y YUC. You write, quote, Organizations like ours can easily make the mistake of adopting a pessimism-steeped pragmatism, shedding our radical imaginations and collectivist ideologies to turn into safe space vehicles that primarily promote individualist expressions of self-empowerment. 
Explain your take and how it has shaped changes at YUC in recent years, and also whether you think that it is possible for left-wing organizing projects to both serve the people and build power simultaneously. Well, I think what's at the root of that is a lack of interrogation of things in which a lot of our NGO work are, are founded on. So what I mean by that is like we're in these projects for the most part that are conducting bastardized forms of both like charity and social work, as well as like liberatory politics. And it's like a weird, funky mashup. That means that we're doing both of those poorly at the same time, all the time. Um, and I, I saw that up close and personal uh, in my first year, whereas there was like, we would, you know, I would witness staff and, and, and members utilizing really vibrant, rich, liberatory rhetoric and like, just like these sound bites that were just sharp and provocative, but weren't necessarily focused on building out beyond the crew of people that we had. And at the same time, there was a lot of insistence around addressing the material needs of young people who had been recruited, who in a lot of ways were some of the, the probably pulled from what we like to describe as like hyper exploited to excluded parts of the working class, meaning like they're probably dealing with you know, housing instability, uh, dealing with issues around economic instability and just like not knowing where to go. And so a lot of the initial work that I saw happening was both kind of like this weird mashup of like, we got to fight, but not really doing the, the building out. And at the same time, doing triage all the time, but doing it in the way where it was like, it was poorly done because none of us were trained to be social workers. We didn't have an experience in that. And it led to just like a muddiness that didn't allow us to actually build power and didn't allow us to actually resolve the real issues that young folks were dealing with. And any attempt, you know, by the, by the six month mark, when I had done enough observation and enough assessment and journaling to realize that, like, we're going to have to deal with this thing, which is this like muddiness around these two concepts. And like, we're going to have to get rid of the, the social work component. The moment that that happened was the moment that I began to feel in real time a lot of the resistance. Right. And like when I think about politics for me, like when I think about organizing and politics, it's not about identifying people that are like you that want what you want and like having a small crew. It's really about the alignment of forces. What are the forces that we're going to need to actually win the things that we want? And what are we learning about these forces so that if they're different than us, we can still speak to their self-interest? Like that's to me, like when I stepped into the role that was one of the things that I was already clear about and wanted to explore, but I found that the organization structure itself was not designed to actually do that, right? In many ways, it was like um, a hangout. You know, one of the good things about it was that like whenever we needed to mobilize, we always had 20 to 30 young people readily available to do so because they were there to hang out. Right. And this is not to take away anything from them. It's just to talk about the structure and kind of like what was actually moving the structure. And as I said in the piece and, you know, deep down. What, what, what's at the core of that and why I think the organization up until that point was developed that way was that there was probably a general understanding that the things were so hard in the city that nothing fundamentally was going to change. 
So how do we create a space where young folks of color, predominantly, you know, pr- primarily Black and Latino folks from the lower work parts of the working class can come together, feel safe, not be enmeshed in things that are happening, which could threaten their lives and things like that. And, feel, you know, and then put them through an experience where they get to feel good about resisting the system, things like that. And, you know, that's the best we can offer. And I just think that, like, if we were ever to be able to recover, right, which is what we talked about at the beginning, we were going to have to challenge that at, at its root and build something wholly new, which for us, we didn't see uh, elsewhere in, in the local ecosystem. So I, I think something that's really important to understand around that question is that it's entirely logical to want to prioritize the labor of the organization to meet the needs, the immediate material and or emotional needs of the folks that are coming into the organizational space when you're working with folks who are hard hit by the system every day. It's a humane reflex. It's a humane reflex. It just means we're human and we care about the folks we're working with, which we have to do to do this work. And that it actually requires a higher level of emotional bandwidth and emotional intelligence to be able to feel that, to be angry that our folks have to go through what they're going through every day and yet have enough political clarity to understand what it is that our organization does and hopefully does well and what it doesn't do, right? And we're, when we're so alienated and so atomized in society and within the, the ecosystem of, of organizations, we feel like we have to be a one-stop shop for everything. Um, and it's, I would say it's because organizations aren't designed and I think we haven't built enough of a practice among the left in a way that is shareable across organizations and across sort of different locales to be able to establish that clarity at the onset. I'll give you an example. I am trained as a, as a social worker. I don't have a degree in social work, but through practice, I've been trained. I've, I've been able to do it. I've worked doing social and emotional supports with young people and adults in different stages of my life. That experience and that training has been super helpful in YUC because I'm able to have some practice around just having conversations with folks about stuff that's happening in their lives, managing family dynamics, um, navigating systems that are clearly, clearly pushing them out, whether it's through housing or their schools or whatever. And yet, I, because I have that training, I have to constantly keep myself in check to not cross a line. Because when we as organizers, and I would say that organizers function, the most analogous role in someone's life is a coach, right? Like you can have a deep emotional attachment and a deep mentorship relationship with a coach, but the coach plays a certain role for you. And it's mostly around training to do a thing and supporting emotionally to do that thing really well to win something. Um, and so if, if I enter the emotional support space in a way that doesn't maintain clarity, especially for young people about what my role is in their lives, then I can actually undercut my ability to be an effective organizer. And what we learned early on is that we actually have to invest time and energy into finding adjacent organizational spaces or individuals with a particular expertise who are at least somewhat aligned with our politics. Like a volunteer social worker. Exactly. Like someone who can be like, hey, when this is going down, can we refer our folks to have a conversation with you? And then we're making the connection, right? We're telling our folks, hey, I trust this person. I know what they're about. And then this is a space for you to do that. And then we're helping manage the sort of referral follow-up process 
but we're not entering that space that undercuts our ability to be clear about what our role is and what other roles should be. And so we do that at the individual level, but we also do that with like, I, I can't help the, the folks that I'm working with that are applying to college, like be the primary person supporting their college application process. I write recommendations, I read essays when I can, but I have to find some other space that's designed to do that, that has a relationship with me where we can provide that kind of support, but we're not deviating from what we do, which is political work. You write a lot in the book about how key emotional intelligence is to organizing, and you just referenced it. Since I've recently returned to serious organizing work after a decade-long journalistic hiatus, I've been reminded of the like easy-to-forget for fact that so much of the way that we discuss politics misses the fact that concrete political work is all about human relationships. And that's sometimes great, sometimes frustrating, sometimes worse than frustrating. What do you mean by emotional intelligence? And how can one become more emotionally intelligent and make their group more emotionally intelligent? Because it's hard not to get pissed off sometimes, especially when one is very confident that they are right and their comrade is very wrong. Um, the way that we define it, I think there's there's many more la layers you could add to it, right? There's books written about emotional development, uh, emotional intelligence. But the, the way that we try to synthesize it is the ability to both clearly identify and manage my own emotional reactions and to be able to be attuned to the emotional reactions and needs of others and be able to address them through our practice. That's essentially it. Um, and so there's a duality, right? It's not just like, I know how to influence other people or I know how to be convincing. That's important. That requires emotional intelligence. But I would say that the, the meat and potatoes of it in terms of political practice is more the internal piece. Being able to become more aware of what I'm feeling. And so many of us in society just don't, aren't given access to practices that allow us to do that. In fact, so many of our beliefs about society I think whether it's through patriarchy or a number of other systems, we come to believe that that's a bad thing, right? Or, or it shows weakness or et cetera, right? And, but it's be able to say, I, I understand what I'm feeling, understand why I'm feeling it. I think that's where having an ideological level of development and some sort of way of understanding how the system impacts us is important because we can also understand the, way, the ways in which the world is designed to make me feel this way. Right? That may not be its intent, but that's what it produces. And so when I can recognize that, that doesn't mean I'm not going to feel angry when a comrade strongly disagrees with my very hard-won assessment, right? but that I understand where that anger is coming from. And I've also had spaces where I can explicitly talk about it and where we've had explicit conversations about what do I do in those moments, and then I get to engage in practice around emotional development in particular. For example, one of the things that we... I think probably like out of the last five years we've been doing work, I'm going to say maybe like year two or year three, we identified that the most expedient and effective way of developing both political analysis, organizing skills and emotional intelligence is to create opportunities for formal leadership amongst our membership, right? And so what we have on our wall is you don't become a leader until you've trained another leader who's trained another leader. And we, over time, have built out, I think we've mentioned the, the beginning stages of this in the book, is developed uh, concrete mechanisms for members to be in, in 
formal leadership relationships with others, right? So we have different chapters. There's a core leadership team in that chapter. And over time, we also developed a leadership committee that's for the whole org. And in those spaces, we're, dig we're carving out time to train them to hold one-on-ones with other members. So they, at some point, we hand off responsibility for holding one-on-ones that are designed to both retain members and also get a sense for what they're interested in, what they're excited about, what they want to learn, what skills they want to build. And they see us honor those requests. So someone says, I want to work on my public speaking. At some point, they're like, all right, there's an opportunity to do a public speaking. Uh, I'm going to ask this member to do it. And they may be like, oh, no, I don't want to do it. It's like, oh, but, but remember, you said you wanted to work on it. They're like, all right, cool. Um, <laughs> but, but we also train members on, on doing that. And we have a very strong or try to have a very strong focus on accountability, right? So if someone said that we're going to do something, then we would maybe meet with our core team that's, that's in charge of holding accountability and holding one-on-ones with that member and say, well, what do you think needs to happen, right? What may be happening for them? They may have insight about their peer, about something that's going on behind the scenes for them that we may not know as staff, but also they're just building that muscle, right? And so then they go and engage in that conversation. They come back to staff. We have a conversation about it. We report back. We do what worked well, what didn't work well. These are some tips that maybe you can do. Try it again, come back, and we engage in a cycle of praxis to build emotional intelligence, right? It has to be through the work, just like everything else. Every other part of political development within which we would include emotional development has to happen through the work. We can have conversations and the conversations are super helpful, but if there isn't that space for praxis where they're making mistakes and they're feeling really terrible and they're coming back and saying, damn, I fucked that up. And you know, we, we kind of go about it again and again, that's the only way to build the level of emotional intelligence that I think for us is pretty clear is necessary to do the kinds of work that we're trying to do under the conditions that we're in. You know, the other thing is, is like in these times, especially emotional intelligence is a requirement for anyone engaging in left political work, because when it comes to the matter of strategy in these types of conditions, you're going to have to say no to things that are going to be devastating to say no to if we want to actually move forward, right? And so we have to learn how to navigate our trauma, our hangups around oppression, right? Like that are real, that are experienced to be able to begin mapping a pathway forward to that, that will be more effective than if we you know, take on the, the one-stop shop mentality and try to do everything all at the same time. And as an organization, we've developed and built up the muscle to be able to say no to a lot of things that don't, that we don't believe bring us closer to the implementation of our, of our vision, even though, you know, more broadly, the issue itself may have a hell of a lot of resonance with folks uh, within, you know, the social movement left, right? And we, we constantly run up against that. And, you know, a lot, of that, a lot of that emotional intelligence is also deeply rooted in a strong materialist analysis at all times, right? Concrete, concrete assessment all the time. And, and that's the only way that we can actually build power with what feels like indomitable conditions, like is to be able to say no to things that we may want to pursue, but after a deep assessment of what's available and what's possible and the openings in front of us, realize that this is not the move for us to take. I want to return to the, the question of evaluation because emotional intelligence is key there. And I think it's core to what your book is about and what your book does. How do you go about doing evaluation in an assessment and accountability in a way that doesn't make people feel down about making mistakes or defensive or angry or even 
if they admit that it didn't go well, despondent over wasting their time. And then on the other side of things, how do you do that all in a way that doesn't fall into a trap that has been far too pervasive in the history of the U.S. left, using it as a pretext for damage and emotional abuse? We saw this in the new communist movement, new left groups like the Young Lords, even some horror stories I've heard from labor unions in more recent years. Yeah, totally. I think I've been doing this for a short period of time and I'm relatively young myself. And whenever I've engaged in conversation with folks that have been doing political work for for much longer and were part of those those movements and spaces, I think it's helped me clarify to what extent the inaction of leadership has been deeply traumatizing for a lot of people. I think that's super real. Um, And I think, you know, when in, in a lot of spaces nowadays, it feels like it often becomes important to do like a defense of leadership, right? And sometimes even a defense of hierarchy um, for organizational effectiveness. And then that can push against, I think, folks really painful experiences and then entirely understandable reactions to, to that kind of thing. I've been engaged in a defensive dues payment today. <laughs> <laughs> that, for example, right? I think that, you know, one of the reasons, again, why emotional intelligence is important is precisely because of that thing. Right? Because learning something new always sucks at some stage of the process. That can be most of the process, or it can be a short part of the process. Right, At some point when, when we're getting good at something, I think there's a lot of rewards that we get uh, in our brains in terms of what that feels like. But at some point, it sucked. And when you're asking people to commit their time to a political project, when they could be doing a million other things, oftentimes that initial experience of it just feeling bad can be the 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 wave that you know diminishes membership most quickly at the at the beginning stage of the process i would say that the most important principle in being able to do that well for whoever's leading that process in a lot of organizing nonprofits really it's staff but i'm just going to say leadership like the folks who are structuring the programmatic interventions and the programmatic life and process of an organization. Um, in our case, it's staff primarily. We have to be doing that as well, right? Like we, we have to model what that looks like at our level of expertise with the questions that we're wrestling with in a way that's appropriate, right? We're not going to bring folks that are new to the organization into our high level, passionate staff debates around programming if that's not appropriate, but we can share, especially as individuals that this is what happens to me when I make mistakes. This is how I react. Or if there's a mistake that I've made as a staff person and then structure out a way, so I have, I may have to do some emotional processing before I have this conversation with members, but get to a point where I can say, hey, this is where I messed up. This is how I responded in this moment. This is maybe I, how I caught feelings in a particular way. And also this is my assessment for what I need to do in the future. Also, these may be my personal tendencies, right? So I may have a tendency towards mediating and not wanting to engage in frontal conflict. And so I avoid conflict and that's how I don't add to a healthy organizational process. Some folks are ready to jump into conflict, right? Um, too ready. <laughs> or too ready, right? And, and that also doesn't help the organizational process. But if I think if members or new folks entering a political space can see that the leaders in the space are modeling in a way that doesn't diminish them, both like being honest about mistakes um, be trying to be rigorous about assessments and also acknowledging uh, proactively when mistakes happen and then always pr- 
practicing consistently, like this is what happened. These are my intentions. These are my commitments. I think that makes space for folks to be like, oh, damn, A, maybe I've never seen that before. B, damn, if these folks are leading the space and making mistakes and they're owning up to it, I guess it's okay for me to make mistakes too. And I also see how other people do it. And so I acquire a language for how to talk about it. I see people modeling the the emotional reactions that come from talking about it. And I see that folks, you know, when, when we try our best to be genuine when we do that. And then once we are able to model that, then we also set an expectation for it early on, right? When we're having a one-on-one with someone, we say, hey, look, we can't do this work unless we're all transforming. That includes us as staff. Now we try to build in as many practices to like hold each other and support each other while we do this but the transformation has to happen. We're all learning. And so, and we're also allowing people to speak in a one-on-one basis from like, what's hard for you? What are some things, what are the supports that you need? What are your expectations of me as your organizer? So when that moment hits, when someone's like, damn, I messed up and I may be really angry, we've built some uh, like tissue around the practice that's gonna happen to both hold folks accountable. Like you didn't do the say the thing you said you would do, but also sometimes what that often looks like, especially with folks in leadership, for me is I forgot to do this thing. Did you write it down? You didn't write it down. Do you have a cell phone or something that can give you some kind of digital alarm? Do you know how to use your notifications? No. All right, let's pull out your phone. This is what notifications look like. You can send an alarm. Oh, I can send an alarm. Yeah. And then so like, cool. Did you send an alarm for that thing? And then it's not an issue again. Which doesn't help you when uh, you put the wrong time in your calendar, but that's another issue. <laughs> <All> right. <laughs> but you know, practice. You, know? Right. you write about, about tightening up what, why you see membership meant. Raphael, quote, if everyone was a member, no one was a member. If no one was a member, essentially there was no YUC outside of adult staff. This is a question I find very vexing and that I've had to figure out myself very much in practice. And it's turned out the right balance has been different than what I had initially imagined, which is how much is too much of a barrier to organizational entry and how much is too little. And and this ties back into accountability as well, because if you don't do that right and you piss someone off, they can walk out the door. If unless you're the boss in a wage labor relationship and they depend on you to not starve. Yeah, I mean, I want to I want to offer like a, a qualifier, like, you know, we we believe that people should be building their organizations based on the very specific context and conditions they're in. So we're not we're not saying that, folks, this is like the oh, this is the standard for how we should define membership. But I think for us, you know, prior to us developing a contract, anyone who stepped into the doors of YUC could have been a member of YUC, even if you only attended 15 minutes out of a chapter meeting, right? And what that means is, for me, if anybody can just kind of come in and they're not actually committing to building the organization, learning about his campaigns, learning about the purpose of the organization, then they're fundamentally not they're not connected to it. They're not a member. Right. And, and so, you know, and we learn in practice that like, that was actually true that people who were mostly part of YUC at that point were like there for reasons that were different than the type of purpose that I was trying to uh, establish within an organization. And I think, you know, I think also too, on the left, we have a hard time defining what is what. I mean, in spaces I'm in now, people aren't clear about what a base is, right? Some people confuse a base with your membership, right? But a base is not just folks that are directly in, in, you know, integrated into your organization. The way we I think about a base is like the folks outside of your organization that aren't formally members that are bought 
but that are bought into your line, that are bought into what you're pursuing. They may be community members, they may be parents, they may be teachers that are somewhat affiliated, but these folks, if you put a call out, they can move. Um, but in order for you to even be able to reach those types of people, you need like a dedicated group of folks that are committed to not only attending meetings and showing up and participating in various activities and actions, but are deeply committed to the act of building organization and developing other leaders. And that means that like those folks have a higher standard of expectation that has to be formalized and they have to commit to doing that. And like, that's kind of how we got there. Cause we saw that like the loosey goosey approach, although uh, it may work for other people, wasn't working for the type of work that we were trying to pursue, which is like acutely the development of a new wave of progressive black and brown leadership in the city. And that meant a higher level of expectation around practice in order to get to the point where those folks who participated in YUC could deem themselves as leaders in an emerging movement. You went from a, a dragnet that brought in any student who came your way to this more targeted model, identifying people who were already leaders, people with hallway credibility. Explain this organizing approach of identifying people who are already leaders and organizing them into your organization as leaders. So I think, you know, that a lot of the initial assessment came, as Raphael mentioned, and we were talking about earlier from what had gone wrong in the previous period. Um, and I think it was also, so I write in uh, one of the pieces that I wrote for the book, which is a case study uh, in the chapter that I've been leading, uh, was that I actually worked with a number of uh, members who had been part of YUC's previous era, who um, moved through the implosion and kept wanting to be connected with the organization. And so we blended our, our efforts in the first few months to try to center around those folks to both like honor what they had been through, right? Like a sense of loss for what the organization looked like before and, and felt like, and also see if we could motivate them to want to shift what membership looked like for them. And um, I think that process was really, really helpful in both testing out what a more rigorous and accountable organizational process, I guess, system or programmatic structure looks like. And then also was really helpful in then figuring out what do we say to new members who we're trying to recruit to the organization about what the organization is from the jump. And I think what we realized is that there is a certain level of technical ability and orientation to be part of something that isn't always just like a fun space that sort of needs to be there, right? We, we, we always try to make it so that membership is open to as many different people as possible. But we're also, we were also in a moment where we knew we were going to be asking more of members coming in than we had been in the past. And so what became clear as we started recruiting and engaging with more students in schools and refining our recruitment method was that the kinds of folks who resonated more with what the idea of the organization we were putting forward was. Obviously those first few years was like, let me sell you this idea of what we want YUC to be, right? After year two, year three, we could talk about campaign wins and we can be a lot more explicit about the work that we had been doing. So that made it a lot easier to recruit folks because they could clearly identify like, oh, these folks were the, the folks who got clean filtered water in our schools. All right, I'm, I'm more interested than I would be before when you're explaining this thing that doesn't exist yet. But 
when we started going through that process, then we it was we started to identify that it was folks who already both played a particular leadership role, maybe in a way that wasn't or uh, that wasn't clearly identified. So maybe not like the the person with the highest GPA or the student who's going to be valedictorian, but more so someone who holds sway with other students or peers, right? Like when they talk, even if they were talking in a way that was disruptive to what the teacher was trying to do, when they talked, other folks listen, right? And usually that means that folks that are having some level of synthesize what they're seeing around them and put something forward that actually attracts other people's thinking, right? Like, oh, they said something that's really on point. Like I, you, you know, whether it's through humor or just saying something that's insightful, even when it's disruptive to the school environment. And also folks who at the same time had presented some level of like questioning the structures of society in some way. So that when we're in a classroom or we're in some kind of meeting and we're talking about the different ways in which our neighborhoods or societies are structured the way they are, something like perks up. And it's like, oh, I, I may not know what this, I don't know what organizing is. I don't know what YUC is, but that conversation was interesting. And I may not know exactly why, but I want more of it. And those folks were the folks who most clearly resonated with what we were putting for the organization would look like. And just so happened that those are folks that uh, I think we try to succinctly capture the street cred, but that's sort of what that looked like. And I think what, what I started seeing is because I was in the same schools where students were coming from in previous YUC eras is members who clearly had a lot of potential, who some of whom entered the organization and had a really good run before they graduated or left, who said, I've always been interested in the idea of YUC, but it didn't attract me because it didn't seem like the space for me based on what I saw YUC was before. That's the truth. And so that was also a clear indicator that we were getting closer to a way of targeting students. And again, we everyone's always open. I make sure that I, I you know, every single student in a, a set of grades in the school has been to one YUC workshop, but it's also within those spaces that are as broadly engaging as possible we're also getting a sense for who's interested, who may, we may need to do like more follow follow ups with, and and who we really are are trying to to target in terms of encouraging them to join the organization. One way that you re- develop leadership is to quickly move people into tactical leadership positions. Quote: Even if the members were still a ways away from being able to articulate and wrestle over a strategic direction, once they identified opportunities. The organizers went about creating the scaffolding that allowed students to explore questions of tactical innovation for the first time. I found that to be a really important point about how to bring people into leadership and develop both their capacity and thus the organization's larger capacity. Explain the difference between tactical and strategic leadership and how you use the two to build capacity. Yeah, so in terms of like strategic uh, leadership, you know, the reality is if a member just comes into the organization, you know, when they're just getting uh, made aware of like what the organization is doing, then there's, there's not enough, there's not enough time or experience for them to offer up strategic offerings that are actually useful. They just don't have enough experience. Right. But for instance, like when we rebooted the organization, and begin uh, stepping out after some period of like internal development amongst the new folks that were going to make up the core of the new YUC in our first year, we took them to a district community, community participation event around the sex. And in that process, folks were 
allowed to engage in tables of discussion with like adults, other folks around like this issue of decision-making at a hyper-local level within schools. Giving them the space to do that, even though they didn't understand the long-term strategic orientation of the organization at that point, gave them the means to begin interrogating what, how schools actually function and then how YUC should be developing in relationship to this information around schools and in and, and the district uh, that they were learning as new members. And so for us, you know, praxis becomes a key component in developing people. It's not just enough to like have folks go through enough PE and then have a strategy discussion, right? Because they're still embodied experiences that they haven't gone through that would help them better understand what's at play. It's important that we're putting young people in a position when, you know, where they're going through certain experiences that can then deepen their understanding of the role of the organization. And then from that place inform how they participate in strategy conversations, whether it's attending actions, you know, leading actions, whether that's canvassing in West Kensington and talking to folks, all those things played a key role in developing a new kind of institutional memory around not only YUC as an organization, but as dialogue with this conditions and this various opponents and allies. And folks from that place could then over time be able to offer up informed strategy uh, offerings uh, when the time called for it. Much of your thinking around organizing has been informed by your participation in Left Roots, a, a national cadre organization that plays a quiet but powerful role in shaping some of the most talented left organizers in the country. What have you learned from Left Roots, and why has that been helpful for a neighborhood-based organizing project like YUC to be grounded in a national project that's assessing strategy at that bigger scale? Well. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that was important about participating in Left Roots was that, um, in my experience, it was the first time I'd actually heard people begin questioning the lack of national strategy as being an impediment to all of our collective activity and our various NGO projects and, uh, and you know, and, and beyond. And that there was actually a dearth in people who were actually skilled to develop that type of strategy and that our job was to develop ourselves to be able to understand the concepts that make up such a strategy and then figure out how we go about implementing a strategy in the current conditions we have. So like, you know, it's one of the one of the key reasons why we decided to write the book. You know, I participated um, in the development of a of the of the first strategy orientation, strategic orientation that was developed by Left Roots in 2017. And in that process, it became clear that we had like this, it, it was entitled, We Believe That We Can Win, but we had like this really interesting approach to dealing with the issues that we're confronted, confronted with now, but there wasn't enough uh, obvious experience of folks in NGOs in the U.S., figuring out how to reorganize their organizations to be able to apply components of that strategy in their locales. And so we were like, not only are, is YUC going to, in its own way, work to figure out how we can kind of get beyond this, you know, um, this game where like folks are just doing their own individual projects, but it's not adding up to more than some of its parts. We want to like actively show people 
this is an attempt to apply national strategy to real life stuff. And we not only want to show that, we want it to be like documented for folks that are coming after. So that was one of the key reasons why we wrote the book. And I think, again, having a space where we were openly talking about strategy as being key to the left's advancement, potential advancement in the U.S. was super informative um, in how we approached uh, the work going forward. You, you've both mentioned that it's it's critically important to have ideological orientation to, to work. In the case of why you see in many other Black and Latino leftists, the ideology draws heavily on third world Marxist traditions, including the, the revolutionary leader Amilcar Cabral. Why is ideology so critical and why draw on Cabral in particular? I think that the, having a firm ideological grounding is primarily important in being able to construct what the vision is for the organization, not just what are the goals, uh, short-term or medium-term goals about this particular campaign that we're working on, but where we want the organization to go. And we we have, you know, one of the first things that each chapter in their own respective ways does after onboarding new members is talk about vision, right? Both vision for that the work of that chapter in terms of the campaign that they're working on, but also the organization, because that becomes the main tool through which we filter out what we say yes to and what we say no to. That includes what campaigns we work on and which campaigns we don't work on. And if it doesn't get us closer to that vision, even though it may be a super important, urgent and worthwhile campaign or set of political work uh, to do, we have to say no. right? And we have to be super grounded in that to be able to have both the clarity and as well as the emotional intelligence to be able to say no, right? That often saying that often looks like saying no to strategic allies who are asking for our support in a way that doesn't just say no, uh, but also doesn't engage in work that we know is not strategic for our organization. But to be able to mediate those relationships to both stay in good comradely relationship with allies and still be able to be clear about what our line is, and so that I think that the vision piece is the first one, but it also is important to build in an understanding for why we do the work the way that we do it, right? So if folks don't understand at some level why heteropatriarchy is such, is both so deeply ingrained in society as well as helps reinforce white supremacy and capitalism, right? Even though we may not talk about it in those terms at the very beginning of a member's process, we do very clearly talk about them once they've reached the level of development where we can go there then they won't understand why we have to posit ourselves as a feminist organization and what that looks like in practice all the way down to our group agreements for how we run meetings. Um, and if we also don't have a, an understanding of class, right, which is, I would say, the murkiest particular like ideological lens to, to really kind of build out and, and create language around and, and bring members into like everyone understands middle class, working class, but thinking about class as, you know, a, a broader encapsulation of one's experiences and relationships to the system within the system, then we also can address certain things that come up naturally, like sort of either internalized stuff around classism or in the case of some members who are coming from the hardest hit neighborhoods, right? I think that what we, something that Cabral said was in that particular moment, right? In the, the national liberation struggles and war of independence for Cape Verde and Guinea-Bissau, that because of the particular composition of the colonial system at that time, 
the initial steps that needed to happen to build a political organization and then ultimately an army was to target the first subset of folks were people that had some level of class privilege within the colonial system, because those were the folks that had the technical skill to be able to, to build the initial components of our organization and then work to translate those skills to organizing other folks that didn't have access to that kind of class training and technical training. And in a, I think that was really helpful for us to understand the role that certain folks with relatively privileged class positions have amongst communities that are, as Rafael mentioned, pre predominantly in the excluded or most marginalized section of the working class, is that oftentimes folks that have had that level of training or baseline training to be able to enter a political organization, stay committed, have enough time and stability to be able to come every week and not have to deal with family issues and et cetera, et cetera, is that sometimes that can manifest in a, well, I'm a good student and those folks who are bad students are messing it up for all of us, which is an understandable frame and helps explain the world in a particular way. And it's actually super unhelpful to organizing broader sections of the community, their schools, the working class in general. And so without a firm ideological grounding and understanding of class and why it's both understandable to have that, that particular lens of the world and their peers, but it's actually counterproductive to organizing building power, then we can't actually make the case effectively for why we have to unlearn some of that stuff to then be effective organizers in terms of our relationship to other folks that we're trying to organize. I, I mean, I, I think the reality is, is to, you know, in our sector in particular, due to a history of red baiting, a history of state repression and violence that folks who held our politics uh, incurred in this country, you know, there's just not enough conversation about the basis for where a lot of our politics come from. And so for us, when we wrote the book, we were clear that though YUC is not a revolutionary project, it's, you know, it's not, uh, it's a vehicle. The folks who work within that vehicle actually have a clear left orientation and that we are, we're going to constantly share with folks who, for the most part, aren't really clear about where their politics are coming from, where ours come from, the basis for, for that. And it's not to, you know, dunk on people or be like, yo, you don't know this X, Y, and Z. It's actually an invitation and an opportunity for folks to actually explore how, like, what were the historical events, people, and conditions that shaped the way that they see themselves when it comes to this issue of liberation and confronting the current system as it stands. And I just think that, you know, at the end of the day, we always, like, why you see our, our folks, we always want to be in, in dialogue with the, the folks, the, you know, our movement forebears, the folks in the past who whose work we're building on, right? We're not... We're not saying that our project is going to usher in, a, you know, the, the new world and we're going to like leave that type of impact. But we can say without a shadow of a doubt that the folks that are touched by our project, the folks that have engaged our project, some somebody or someone or some people that have had that experience will go on and build on what's what, what we've done and what others will continue to do and will pave the way for the type of reality that a lot of our folks um, like Cabral, 
like Lenin and those folks uh, were pushing for, not just for the U.S., but for the entire world. And like, that's why it's super important for us to be really open and honest about the things that are shaping our, our approach. And uh, we're going to continue to do so uh, because we feel like it's important that people reconnect to that the past histories that for too long in this country have been hidden from them um, because they're super effective and powerful to follow and to use as inspiration. Well, Andre Celine and Raphael Randall, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Andre Celine is the outgoing lead organizer at Youth United for Change, and Raphael Randall is the executive director of Youth United for Change. A link to YUC's remarkable book on organizing, Y'all Trying to Win or Nah, is in the show notes. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that political power is merely the organized power of one class for oppressing another, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Rio Francos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, same on Facebook, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please also leave us a nice review. Rating and reviewing us helps introduce us to new listeners. Ostensibly, what really does that is you telling your friends that you like the podcast. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going strong. Even a few bucks is huge. Mm-hmm.